This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC podcast where we hear the stories of those who shape the history and culture of our nation's capital. Warning, the following program contains brief profanity and offensive historical language. Listener discretion is advised. Humanities DC presents Porch Tales, The Disappearing of Sister Coco with Professor D. Boos. From the moment I saw Coco and I got to know her, she was, to me, she was Joan of Arc, Winnie Mandela, uh, uh, um, uh, Harriet Tubman. She was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. The greatest, the, the greatest. And I just admired her and they couldn't get enough of whatever she told me to do or wanted me to do or wanted me to go come, I'm there. I'm there. Just, just sign me in. Whoever Coco does, does goes, I'm going to be there. And that's the way it's been for 51 years. For 51 years. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Professor D. Boos, alongside DJ Influence. The voice you just heard was that of Miss Vera Hope Walston, a longtime close friend of Sister Coco and fellow activist. In this week's episode, we'll follow Sister Coco as she journeys away from student life at Howard University and onto her path as a full-time community organizer. Sit back and listen. We'll talk about what it means to be a real person with real life twists and turns in the era of black power activism. President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Between 1964 and 1965, life for Sister Coco was shifting, pushed by dramatic changes in the U.S. society. In the fall of 1964, Lyndon Johnson ran on a platform of responsible leadership in the dangerous age of nuclear weapons. But he was perhaps best known then as the presidential candidate pledging to support civil rights and to wage a war on poverty in America. This new war would present an opportunity for Sister Coco to be involved in the community outside of Howard and to deepen her work and commitment to Black freedom activism. 
And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. And I urge this Congress and all Americans to join with me in that effort. So the next summer, 65, Johnson did this, um, what was, what was the, the war on poverty, and opened up the UPO, uh, yeah, in D.C., the United Planning Organization. And someone said, go apply for a job. You can do anything. So I did. I went down, and I was hired. I was among the first maybe 300 people they hired. But um, they hired me, and I worked in the downtown headquarters originally until they opened the suburban program the next year in 66. Their office was on Sheriff Road right over. There's a place in Prince George's County, uh, this area, the Ebony Inn, and next door to it was a place called Jack's Liquor Store. Anyway, um, they rented a space over the liquor store, an ex or current SNCC worker named Chuck Jones, Charles Jones, was the director of the office. Charles McDew worked in that office. I, I don't remember his title. And I believe Dion Diamond, if he wasn't assigned there, he would come by and work there. And I was the executive assistant. I would, you know, do the secretarial stuff, plan projects. We did mostly things like voter registration, voter education, setting up events to educate. And by my doing voter education, voter registration, I was around the elected officials. More than two years have passed since Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, and more than two billion dollars have been spent. We still don't know as much as we need to know about who the poor are, but we do know more than we ever did before. We know, for example, that one American in six is poor, about 32 million. Of them, fewer than a quarter are on public assistance. In fact, more than half have an employed breadwinner in the home. We know that one Negro in two is poor, but we also know that for every poor Negro, there are four poor whites. In fact, in many respects, a person's chances of being poor are predetermined. Michael Harrington, whose writing has done a good deal to shape the poverty program, holds that people are not poor because they are lazy or incompetent. He says they are poor because they made the mistake of being born to the wrong parent in the wrong section of the country, or the wrong industry, or to the wrong racial or ethnic group. From a contemporary perspective, Sister Coco's work in voter registration and anti-poverty organizing could seem outside the main lines of the Black freedom struggle in the mid-1960s. When we think of civil rights fights now, we typically think of dramatic sit-ins at lunch counters, large rallies, and big speeches. But listening closely to the names of Sister Coco's colleagues at the UPO reveals that she worked alongside SNCC activists from the front lines, like Dion Diamond, who risked his life desegregating lunch counters in Northern Virginia, and most famously served as one of the 1961 Freedom Riders. Sister Coco also mentioned Charles Chuck McDo, who was 
not only an original founding member of SNCC, but also chairman from late 1960 until 1963. In fact, every person she mentioned has served as a leading activist of the time. But my point is this, the war on poverty was a crucial front in the black freedom struggle. These activists knew then that black freedom in America could not be separated from the fight against black poverty and political disempowerment. After all, who is really free if they're shackled by poverty? Ms. Coco, why did you want or desire to, to be involved in community activism at that point? You could have been doing anything at that. You had all kinds of skills. <laughs> you know, no one's ever asked me that. And so I've never thought about it. I guess as I got older and um, I began to see life a little different with the um, Dr. King, March of Washington and things coming, crystallizing and coming to a head and I'm headed to Howard. I just had to think differently. And um, I was excited about being in the middle of things, but I didn't go south. I wanted to help the people who were gonna go south. I wanted to do what I could do locally. It was very exciting, but I didn't, I didn't say, can I go, you know, kind of thing. And I, I, I don't, I don't know, with, would I have gone south? Probably not, but you know, I was gonna be this aeronautical engineer. And um, I got so caught up with the student stuff second year, I changed my major. I can't be in the Valley studying no physics because <laughs> what's happening is on the main campus. So it was that kind of thing. I just knew that I wanted to make a difference. But um, getting back to what you're asking me about Chuck do and, and, and kind of things I did and why, I think the times affected me. I think I was right for it. I think I have been on the edge of doing things like that all the while in my dad's store, helping people address their needs, though they weren't color of their skin needs, still they were needs. Then I began to see that there was a relationship, there was a correlation. As the dramas of the 1960s unfolded, many Black Americans' politics began shifting from traditional civil rights demonstrations toward more militant protests. Poverty and racism, the murders of activists, and the increasing draft of Black Americans for the U.S. war in Vietnam radicalized many, Sister Coco among them. Evolving from a student into a serious activist, Sister Coco would put her body on the line for one of the first times in an anti-war protest against Howard University's hosting of Madame New, first lady and sister-in-law of Ngo Dinh Diem, leader of South Vietnam in 1963. I remember um, we were demonstrating against the Vietnam War and uh, that had to have been around the same time. I remember that the university had invited Madame Nguyen uh, to come and speak at the university. Man, it was almost a riot on campus. It was everything but a riot. 
Nobody likes him. Nobody wants him. We don't want brotherhood. You keep the brotherhood. The Negro is not the problem. The problem is what Negro connotates, what it stands for. The pigment of skin isn't the problem. The problem is that the Negro in this country today stands for venereal disease, prostitution, the numbers racket, and crime. CBS reports Black Power, White Backlash with CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Summer 1966 was a season of revelation for the white man in the North. For the first time, he began fully to comprehend the intensity of his feelings and his fears about the black man. For years, he had watched smug and fascinated as the trials of the southern black and white were played out for him like some morality play on his television screen. But he remained a spectator, only half involved. Then came summer 1966. And as riots crackled through his cities, the northern white man came to realize the depth of his confusion, his animosity, and fear. Black power was the catalyst, a phrase shouted by a 25-year-old revolutionary on a Mississippi highway. It was a rallying cry to northern blacks mired in frustration and bitterness, a cry that sounded like a threat of violence, of vengeance, to a white man fed up with racial turmoil. In the summer of 1966, SNCC's Stokely Carmichael led a Mississippi community in an electrifying call for black power. Facing ongoing violent racist oppression, Carmichael argued black people needed organized political power to free themselves. 
This quickly caught the attention of America and made Carmichael an internationally famous activist. The following is the voice of Stokely Carmichael, speaking in 1966. Now, several people have been upset because we said that integration was irrelevant when initiated by blacks and that in fact it was a subterfuge, an insidious subterfuge for the maintenance of white supremacy. Now we maintain that in the past six years or so, this country has been feeding us a thalatomide drug of integration and that some Negroes have been walking down a dream street talking about sitting next to white people and that that does not begin to solve the problem. That when we went to Mississippi, we did not go to sit next to Ross Barnett. We did not go to sit next to Jim Clark. We went to get them out of our way. And that people ought to understand that. That we were never fighting for the right to integrate. We were fighting against white supremacy. Sister Coco has a hazy recall of how she first met Stokely Carmichael. She casually knew him as a NAG member and Howard student. But as the major social movements of anti-war, anti-poverty, and black power arrived and drew her in, Carmichael and Coco's past would fatefully cross again while in the D.C. SNCC office. Okay, so you, you've, you've answered a bunch of questions here, so let me see where I'm at here on this, on this <laughs> list. So you were kind of hinting at this, um, or mentioning this before, but at a certain point, maybe I think 67, 68, around that time, you stopped going to, to your classes at, at Howard. What did it mean for you to transition from being a bright-eyed student to, to this full-time organizer? Well, it wasn't a decision. It wasn't like I had to look at it the way you just laid it out. I never did that because it was a continuation of things I had done at home. The issues of the community would be issues that we would deal with and then organize a way to get it taken care of. So it was, it was life now. We were dealing with life and death issues uh, in that SNCC office and um, it just put a different, a different bend, a different light on the things I was doing. And I was always overwhelmed, but I never felt it. <laughs> it was always something to do, always someone to respond to whom we had to respond. But we handled it. We got we, we took care of whatever had to be done. But mostly it was around Carmichael's work because once he got to the DC office. He was now the chairperson of SNCC, and his load just increased three, fourfold. Between 1967 and 1968, Sister Coco moved from her anti-poverty work at the UPO and worked directly for SNCC. Her days were filled with community organizing initiatives and by directly supporting Stokely Carmichael. But Sister Coco's evenings were spent elsewhere. I don't know how I got involved with the new school, what that transition was. But when the SNCC office moved from U Street to 14th Street, the new school was already established on 14th Street. They were one block apart. And um, 
I went over there for a meeting, I believe, and they asked me to work there. Washington, D.C.'s new school for Afro-American thought was the place to be for Black freedom activists and the larger community. This important center for Black cultural and political education attracted national Black figures like Amiri Baraka, Alex Haley, and Muhammad Ali. Like I said before, any progressive Black that had any national standing, much less all the ones that didn't, when they came to D.C., they came to the new school or they came to D.C. to be at the new school. It was, you know, that kind of thing. Indeed, it would be at the new school that Sister Coco would meet many, including a lifelong friend in the freedom struggle, Miss Vera Hope. So it must have been a Black history class the night I was sitting there and, uh, and looked at the door and saw Coco coming in. And as I tell her, she thinks it's, it's funny. But until she came in, I felt kind of ostracized because my, I've always been into fashion. But at that time, the Sisters in the Struggle wore afros and, and um, you know, jeans and t-shirts and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm wearing suede skirts and shoes that, that cost $75, $80 back in those days. And, you know, fur jackets and stuff like that. So I was kind of, I was just a little too bougie for that thing. But I looked up, and who's coming in the door but Coco with my shoes on? <laughs> she had on my shoes. She had on my exact shoes I had on. They were some orange patent leather loafers from I. Miller. So I, I'm not accustomed to people having on my shoes. I, I'm not accustomed to it. Because that's why I buy them, because I don't want, want nobody else to have what I had. So I saw my shoes coming in the door, and I'm like, wait a minute, hold it. Hold, hold it, hold on. She got on my shoes. Then I looked up, and she had on a hat that went with my coat. My coat was trimmed in red fox. And she had the hat on that went with my coat. And I'm like, stop it, wait a minute. Wait, who, who is this? Who is this? I got to know who this is right here. So I said to myself, she got to be my friend. Because I got to have somebody I can relate to. <laughs> so when I saw it, it was just like, oh, man, another unicorn. How wonderful is this? Not, you know, I hadn't even talked to her enough. I just saw her and knew this was a kindred spirit. Just imagine, just imagine, if you will, somebody as small as she is. Can you imagine how small she was then? She, you know, imagine her 22 years old, what she looked like, how tiny she was. And she, would, she had on a pair, one day she had on a pair of jungle fatigue. And, and the paratroop army boots. The small, I didn't even know they made them that tiny. <laughs> and she had a canteen over her shoulder. I was finished. I was through. I was through. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. And so whatever, whatever she had to do, if, if she had to go somewhere with Stokely, I was riding shotgun or, um, uh, or if he wanted something, I ran the errands. You know, if he wanted a cheeseburger, which he usually did every day, I went to Ben Chili Bowl and got his cheeseburger. If he, he wanted peach cobbler, I went and got his peach cobbler. And that's how I was. 
Sister Coco didn't just look the part of a Black revolutionary. Her community work, personal abilities, and guts transformed her into a respected and serious Black freedom fighter. As Stokely Carmichael broadened his relationships to include work for the Black Panther Party, Sister Coco not only assisted him, but supported East Coast chapter development for the party. I was never a, to coin a phrase, a card member of the Black Panther, a card carrying member of the Black Panther Party. But I worked with the party through Stokely's responsibilities with the party. He, he was their prime minister. And as such, I, I did training in offices up and down the East Coast. Afeni Shakur was one of my trainees. I don't know the names of most of the women in the offices, Baltimore, New Haven, the New York office. And since it was early on, a gazillion offices opened uh, later. They were opening fast at that time. That's really why they asked me to go and do that. You know, how do you answer the phone? How do you deal with the community members coming in, even if they're not supportive, if they're being, you know, jackasses? And um, here again, drawing on my teenage years, <laughs> working in my daddy's store, you know, because they didn't give me any blueprint, any manual. This is how what you say, this is how you deal with the community. So I guess I did a combination of Joe's Corner and the D.C. SNCC office because I didn't have any manual to go by. You know, community, that's who supports you. That's who helps you to survive. They can break in your, your joint every night and tear it up and throw away your stuff, burn it down. You hear the, the community's acceptance. They are the reason why you're here. They're who supports you and protects you. It's always, I guess, like you would tell your employee to your customers. It was always to greet them warmly, to see if there's anything you can do to help them. And if you can, uh, arrange for it to happen. So it was that kind of thing. I only worked in New Haven and New York organizing, you know, the sisters who kind of kept the offices from day to day. And the main thing was to connect with the community and to be supportive of them, be trying to be supportive of you. And if people were, you know, on the wrong foot or wrong thing, gently, but, but definitely uh, correct, correct any, anything that are no-nos and that kind of thing. So it wasn't a real big deal, but some people didn't have any experience in dealing with the public. And those offices grew so fast the number of people associated with an office. But more than that, I think Hoover was opening more offices than we were. Jack Hoover, my gosh, they were sprouting up everywhere. Stokely Carmichael, the new messiah of revolutionary black power, boldly sets forth the objective. This struggle is not a reformist movement which aspires to become a part of the United States. It is a struggle of total revolution. For more than 35 years, international communism, whose historic goal is the overthrow of the United States and the seizure of dictatorial dominion over all mankind, has been working among minority groups in America, particularly at Negro Americans, Puerto Rican Americans, and Mexican Americans. 
The vast majority of American Negroes, together with Americans of all races and creeds, have rejected the blandishments of communism. But today, world communism has established a beachhead here of mammoth revolutionary capability. And revolutionary black power has arisen as the vanguard. Our American system is in great danger. The United States is being hemmed in ever more menacingly by a world communist force which rapidly is overtaking our military supremacy. On the ground, in the air, in the oceans of the world, and in cataclysmic space warfare. Doing black freedom community work was deeply important to Sister Coco, but her activism came with real-life dangers. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and many in mainstream media, police, and government villainized Stokely Carmichael, SNCC, and especially the Black Panther Party, labeling them dangerous communist front organizations seeking to destroy the U.S. These portrayals made Sister Coco and her fellows targets. In the next episode, we'll hear how Sister Coco faced FBI surveillance, fought off a double agent, and was nearly arrested during the 1968 street rebellions in Washington, D.C. This has been a special production for Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm guest producer Professor D. Boos alongside DJ Influence. If you enjoyed this show and want to hear more, check out my regular podcast called The Self-Determined Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, history, art, activism. Be about it. Porch Tales is produced by Humanities DC. If you want to share your DC story, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to rate and review us wherever our podcast lives on your favorite podcast player. This season is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities.